are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 112 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. What is SMSF succession about? How is it different to estate planning? Daniel Butler of DBA Lawyers in Melbourne does a lot of work around SMSF successions, either to get it right from the start or to come to the rescue later when an SMSF succession has gone very wrong. So I asked Daniel whether he could please walk you through the ins and outs of SMSF succession, and he kindly said yes. Here's Daniel. Do a lot of your clients are taken by surprise? Their super is actually not part of the estate? Look, a lot of people, yes. So a lot of people think, done my will, it's all done. So then we say, well, you super. You super may be paid out directly to your children or your spouse or your estate. And, and that could be a sort of revelation for them. When is super paid to the estate? Only when there are no dependents? Or do I jump ahead and you want to cover that later? No, no, Heidi, it's a good question. First of all, let's talk about an SMSF. An SMSF trustee, look, and a lot of SMSF trustees, over 70, 70 maybe even higher percentage, it's about 80%, would be mum and dad trustees. Now, typically with mum and dad trustees, if dad dies, mum could be left standing or vice versa. So the surviving spouse is the one making the judgment quite often. So with that surviving spouse making the judgment, the question is, for them to exercise their discretion appropriately and, and properly, they need to consider who are the eligible dependents. So the eligible dependents are spouse, children, financial dependents and interdependents, and also the estate. And when we refer to the estate, we must be very careful because Technically, we should be referring to the legal personal representative. There's, there's a case on this. It's a Queensland case, 2015. It's Munro and Munro. And in Munro and Munro, he, in his BDBN, said to the trustee of my deceased estate, fail. He should have said, in accordance with the deed, the deed said to make a BDBN to your, your estate, you must have used the term legal personal representative. And being close enough was not good enough. What's the difference between an LPR and an ex executor? I thought the executor <laughs> sounds terrible. I love that executor, executor. Ah, uh, executor. Okay, yes, because I, I was thinking it sounds a little bit strange and not the right thing, what I want to say. If you have an executor, then you have a will. But the mm. LPR is for the SMSF because that's outside of the estate, outside of the will. Is that how it works? No, because the term... Legal personal representative uh, includes includes the executor. Includes where you don't have a will, you have an administrator. So it includes the administrator, and in some cases as well, it may be that person has lost their capacity. So it's the um, guardian of a child who's lost capacity, or it could be a, a court appointed or a what what we have an administrative tribunal to appoint someone's administrator when they have lost their capacity. I see. Okay, so an LPR includes the executor, the administrator, and also the guardian or anybody else who basically represents you legally. You have to be careful because it may also include the trustee in bankruptcy and not a lot of people would want that. Mm. 
Munro versus Munro, he should have said LPR and he spoke of his deceased estate. Was that the problem in Munro versus Munro? Yeah, it was just a, a matter of was it was a former lawyer and it was a senior lawyer. He went to his accountant. His accountant prepared his BDBN. This was the third BDBN that had been prepared wrongly. He died. So the contest was, was his BDBN valid when it said to the trustee of my deceased estate? And clause 31.2 of the deed said you must refer to legal personal representative. And in this context, there's a lot of difference between a trustee of a deceased estate and an LPR or, a, or an executor because an executor role is quite different to a trustee of a deceased estate. So the court drew out about six distinctions between uh, the role of a trustee and the role of an executor. So you must, must be very careful. There's a lot of people who do binding death benefit nominations and they don't do them correctly. There's a lot of BDBNs that fail. And so one particular problem in the Munro versus Munro was that the trustee specifically stated that it needs to refer to the LPR and the BDBN didn't. Correct. And the BDBN had a note to the bottom that said, if you want to pay your money to your estate, refer to the legal personal representative. Having your will done is only part of the succession role. That's really your personal estate planning. On top of that, when you have a self-managed super fund, it's very important you have your succession managed as well. And, you know, a lot of people say it's my will. My will has fixed it, therefore I've taken control of my super as well. But your super fund really is a trust outside of the, your estate and your assets may entirely bypass your estate. So you will really may have no impact whatsoever on where your super ends up. So what we look at is the overall picture. We look at um, primarily getting the right assets into the right hands at the right time. And in order to achieve that end, we really have to look at everything. So we need to start looking at their will, their powers of attorney. We look at their binding death benefit nominations. We look at their auto-reversionary pensions. We look at other instruments such as trust deeds, and who gets a right to the shares in the trustee company, who gets a right to become the appointor, and so on. So what we need is all of these things reviewed so we can actually then work on them to make sure they're all consistent. And fit together. And fit together. So it should be like hand and glove. Like if you have things such as your auto-reversionary pension says it goes to surviving spouse, but your BDBN says it goes to the estate or your legal personal representative, you need to know about those things now. So a client should always do two things. They should do estate planning and they should do SMSF succession. It should be done in conjunction. And indeed, um, even the thing that we mentioned before, the binding death benefit nomination, that BDBN should not be done in isolation. It should be done with the view of the holistic picture. That is, if you do a BDBN and if you're not having regard to the overall estate plan, then you could put a cat amongst the pigeons. A nerdy question. You just said auto-reversionary pension. Every reversionary pension is an auto-reversionary pension, correct? Reversionary pension is always automatically... I'm glad you've asked that question, Heidi. It's a very good question because there is not a lot out on this. But um, really what 
is the main um, document we need to look at is the tax office view. And the tax office view back in 2013, being tax ruling 2013-5, really set out what the ATO want to see. And the ATO want to see a very, it's a very strict um, rule, and that is the ATO want to see no discretion. And in order for there to be no discretion, that is, it's like night following day, this um, pension is going to revert to surviving spouse. If there's any element of discretion, then it will not be considered by the ATO to be an auto-reversionary pension. I see. Hence the word auto to make clear that it's absolutely without any discretion. Correct. And under this ruling, the ATO say that it must be locked in. There must be no element of discretion. So it must happen. And when we look at it from a legal viewpoint, we say for that to be achieved, typically and historically, uh, people have had the discretion, being the people, the trustee, because if we go to, say, a large fund, a large fund, and they're looking at um, Billy Bloggs, and Billy Bloggs has a, a, you know, a pension, for instance, and Billy Bloggs might die, and Billy Bloggs has made his pension reversionary. And let's say Billy Bloggs is separated from Mary. So um, in the past, what's happened? Well, you know, more than 45% of the population divorce or separate, and the last thing that Billy Bloggs would want in his grave would be his pension paid to his former spouse. So you see, in the past, we've had historically this um, discretion, so most deeds have been crafted and drafted on the basis we have a discretion. So the ATO come along in 2013 not realising that and say, hey, we're setting down a very tight principle. No one actually has a deed like this in the country. Nevertheless, we're going to set down this very tight principle. So we now dictate that this is the rule that everyone has to follow. But not many people come to that uh, that that level of strictness. Our deed does. We caught on to this very quickly and we changed our deed for that because of the prior experience was of most deeds, and I'd say most large funds as well, would not technically provide a auto-reversionary uh, pension in, consistent, in a consistent manner with the ATO's directive in TR 2013-5. You make the reversionary pension without any discretion, but if your family circumstances change, then you need to make a new BDBN. Well, well, that's another discussion point altogether. That is, yes, under most documents, you should be able to change your auto-reversionary nomination or your reversionary nomination. So you should be able to change it. That's not a problem, provided your deed facilitates that. Now, when we talk about this, most pensions are set up with very basic documentation. They set up pensions like, I resolve to start an account-based pension. They don't even talk about whether it's reversionary or any other detail. It's simply that is often what we see on mm, um, accounting yes. resolutions. We we start an account-based pension. Okay, well, we need to look at the deed. Does the deed actually specify what are the terms and conditions of that pension? Does the deed provide for reversion? Is there a nomination somewhere in the paperwork that they say they want this nomination to be achieved? And if there is a nomination, do we have in the detail of the deed an express power that says you can lock in the trustee. That is, there is a FETA being an F-E-T-T-E-R yes. rather than a FETA yes. cheese <laughs> yes. to lock in that BDBN. Yes. Because without a FETA, a trustee has a discretion and you cannot really bind a trustee in its discretion unless you have express power in that deed. Yes. Usually under trust law, and correct me if I'm wrong, usually under trust law, I think a trustee is not allowed to fetter its discretion, but 
for an SMSF, the trustee is allowed to fetter its discretion? A broad point of law, yes, that a trustee should not fetter its discretion. However, a trustee can fetter its discretion where in the deed, the deed allows that to be to take place. So this is where we're going. So if you thought about it, then not only a SMSF, but a trust or a large fund, they need to have the express power of, you know, limiting to say a BDBN is one such power. So when you have a valid um, deed which allows a binding death benefit for nomination, they're effectively fettering the trustee's discretion because without the BDBN, um, you can actually choose between the spouse, the child, the dependents, broadly, or the LPR as to who you pay the benefit to. Yes. get back to succession we're looking at paying the right people at the right time in the right manner and therefore we have to make sure we tie everything together and that might get down to the will we certainly need a will that is consistent with what superannuation might want in it Uh, there's a number of things these days like a lot of people are going to a testamentary trust will and with a testamentary trust will you need to make sure if you want the tax efficiency through that testamentary trust, that it is drafted correctly. And did you have a family trust election if you have dividends coming through? Look, the testamentary trust may need the family trust election down the track and exactly on if you have losses, revenue losses, if you have uh, franked dividends, then, yes, you may need the family trust election there. The ATO recently came out to confirm that more than 53% of the SMSFs in the country have corporate trustees. Now, that's interesting because two or three years ago, the ATO's data was was calibrated quite differently. And the ATO was saying 74% of self-managed funds, there's now roughly about 700,000 of them, so they they were saying 74% of them had individual trustees. And on setup, there was far more individual trustees being set up than corporate trustees. But the ATO have recalibrated their data. And the ATO's data now is showing that 53% of SMSFs have corporate trustees. And corporate trustees really is the only way to go here. That is, people who have individual trustees, they're missing out on a lot of benefits. You know, one is succession. And where we have mum and dad, and I'll just talk about a, a war story here. You know, it's great to bring out these war stories. We have this New South Wales Supreme Court judgment of some years back. It's Katz and Grossman. It's a very, you know, famous, celebrated case, but we hear it too too many times. But just to really um, bring out the main facts, there's mum and dad. Mum and dad are the trustees. Mum passes away. Dad's left standing. Dad's there as trustee. You cannot remain a sole individual trustee. So Dad looked at his two children, Daniel and Linda, who will I choose? He chose Linda. So he got Linda on board as co-trustee. He's now satisfied the member trustee, the trustee member rules under Section 17A of the CIS Act. So he's now in compliance with the CIS Act. Some years down the track, Dad dies. Linda's left standing. And Dad, in his non-binding wishes to his kids, said, I want you, you children the two of you, to share my super equally. And at the time of his death, there's roughly $1.2 million in the fund. Yeah, so Linda's left standing. She's got a pot worth $1.2 mil, and she's now got the, the judgment to make 
Well, who does she get on as co-trustee? Does she go to Daniel and say, Daniel, you get on board as co-trustee and we'll decide together how to pay this death benefit? Or does she look to her husband, Peter, and get him on board and then get Peter on board and pay herself? Yes, she gets Peter on board. So self-interest wins out here too. So Peter gets on board. She makes a judgment. She pays herself with Peter's imprimatur as trustee. All perfectly valid and legit. Um, Daniel lost. He took an action at the Supreme Court of New South Wales. He lost. The only upside he got was some of his costs awarded against the fund. Hence, in that case, we could have easily overcome that Katzen-Grossman disaster. We could have had a corporate trustee. With the corporate trustee, we, we could have given gifts of shares in the will. We could have given 50-50 shares in the will to the kids. The kids are then equally. The kids would then have an equal vote as to who is appointed as the director. We could have had a BDBN in place. The BDBN could have said it's going to the kids equally or to the estate, and the estate would have then gone equally. So that's a case where it's just a really easy case to explain to a client the troubles of, a, of an individual trustee. In a corporate trustee, we have continuous succession. We don't have to go through those changes of trustee. It's a much smoother way to go. It's much more efficient. I thought the trustee had to act in a fair and reasonable manner. Ah, well, in Katz and Grossman, it wasn't challenged with bad faith. It was acting in the best interests of the, um, it was held to be not impeachable. There's quite a number of judgments like this where the second spouse is in. Worcester and Morris, in that case, there was a severe conflict of interest that upset her decision. Um, in fact, there's a BDBN there. There's other judgments like Iapoli and Conti where mum dies and mum dies. And in fact, this is a good story because mum had three BDBNs and all of her BDBNs had expired under the three-year rule. And the three-year rule is under CIS. And therefore, between the second and the third BDBN, mum had gone out and got a will. And her will said she wanted her super to go to her two daughters. And her BDBNs were all very consistent. They said super to second husband Augusto. Now, it's it's quite revealing, you know, the facts of that, and that is if we try to read between the facts of that case in Iapoli and Conti in WA, why did she do three BDBNs to her second husband that had all expired, and between the second and third she does a will? And when she goes out to do a will, one would assume she probably saw a lawyer, and that lawyer probably asked her questions to say, who do you want your super to go to? Right, I'll whack it in your will. And that was to her two daughters, who were executors, her two daughters. Her two daughters sought to become the trustees under the self-managed fund so they could actually at least be involved with the payment of the death benefit. And they had no chance at all of getting up. The court did not see any substance to their argument that they should have been in because while an executor can become a trustee, it doesn't make you a trustee. You need the legal documents to get you in there. It's not like a white knight oh, you're an executor, you will be the white knight, you just drift in there at the right time. No, you need it really bulletproof. So in the case of Iapoli and Conti, she went off to her lawyer and she got instructions. The lawyer took instructions, the lawyer prepared the will, but her BDBNs were all to her second spouse. Why do you think that would happen? Probably because she wanted to split it. Look, my reading between the lines is, that the second spouse came up to her, she might have been doing the housework, the dishes, she might have had the kids at her or whatever, and said, sign here, love, sign here, love. <laughs> and she fell for it. 
So she, she signed it and he got exactly what he wanted. When, whereas when she went off to the lawyer and the lawyer started questioning her, she gave the lawyer her instructions, quite contrary to the BDBN. So she's done two BDBNs to the second spouse who are willed to her daughters, then the third BDBN to her second spouse, and that also failed. In any event, at the end of the day, her two daughters lost. Augusto put together his uh, sole director, sole shareholder company. He put that in and he paid himself the money. Perfectly legit. Was not impeachable by the court. It, that, that was also appealed to the appeal court of WA. And how long had Augusto and the deceased been together? Look, I think it was some considerable years. They'd certainly had done three BDVNs. So if we take the duration of a BDVN as being mm. three years, they were certainly there together for more than, say, nine years. Yes. So at least they had walked a fair bit of life together. So it wasn't yes. like that Augusto just came in in the last three months and ran off with the money. No, no, but still, like, the daughter's missed out. And this is what happens in these cases. And, and, and there's a whole series of cases where second spouse has got the money, the second spouse has been left in control, the kids have been disenfranchised of everything. We've had cases where, say, mum and dad have joint assets and we know what happens with the family home and the joint bank accounts, the joint share portfolio on death survivorship reigns. So the survivor of that spouse takes everything jointly. So there's um, nothing left in the estate. And then the super fund is um, often the second spouse is in the super fund. They control the fund just really broadly, practically. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. We refer back to Worcester and Morris where in Worcester and Morris, Mr Morris had a BDBN, but she didn't like it. She didn't want to respect it. And it's a, it's a big challenge to take on someone who says, I've got the money, take me on. There's the Supreme Court. See you down the track many years later, having already spent quite considerable monies, like it might be 50000 before you're in the front uh, steps of the Supreme Court. Do the shares in the corporate trustee, do they go into the estate? Well, if you own the shares, personally, that is part of your estate. So what you need to do is consider, and look, Heidi, what happens here is if we have a corporate trustee, we have shares. So we have shares in the corporate trustee. So the shareholders elect the directors. But that's only one level of power. The real power is like a family trust. With a family trust, we have an appointor. And that's where the power is. So the power for a family trust is the appointor. Who hires and fires the trustee? If they don't like the trustee, they just fire them. They put in someone who sings to their tune. So with a super fund, who is the appointor? The corporate trust. I don't know, actually. Well, that's that's right. I never, I've never asked that question. Okay. I didn't even know. I, I know a family trust always has an appointor, but I never thought that an SMSF would have an appointor. Well, it may not be called an appointor, but there must be an equivalent role of who hires and fires a trustee. Now, that answer is determined under the deed, and deeds are not consistent. But what we reckon is probably a good measure is that the deed should specify things like the members based on their account balance, should have the right to hire and fire. Now, let's put this in context. Let's say um, mum, mum brings in 80% of the wealth. Dad brings in 20%. Who should have the bigger say? Mum. Yeah, why? She's got 80%. She's got 80% on the line. Dad's only got 20% on the line. So in our context, we would give mum the greater say, but when it comes down to the corporate trustee, who votes in the directors? The shareholders. So that's a secondary power. But with the secondary power being the directors, 
The question then is, in a lot of cases, and a lot of these cases we're seeing contested, it's the second spouse. So how do we manage that risk? Yes, if one spouse dies, then the second spouse basically holds all shares. Are the shares held as joint tenants or as tenants in common? Okay, look, typically shares in a company are not held jointly. Um, they're typically held um, as tenants as in, in common. Not as tenants in common, as, as individually. Like okay. normally mum and dad would have a share each. Not always the case. Oh, but yes, again, of course. This is part of the checking. So what, what people have to do, their advisor, typically the advisor go through this or the individual will look at their own affairs. But typically mum and dad might hold one share each, and that's very common um, for mum and dad to have one share each. Now, is it necessary that they have one share each? No. It's not necessary they have one share each. But typically people set up a company to be a corporate trustee or a company where mum and dad are 50-50. So let's say these are falling out or, or a parting of the ways or it's a second spouse and the second spouse is warring against the prior children of the deceased. In that event, if it's 50-50 and there's 50-50 shares, who's going to elect someone to represent, say, dad goes first? Who's going to represent dad's interests if he, if he loses his marbles during his lifetime or he dies? Who's going to represent him? His LPR. How? He only has 50% of the vote. How can you vote in someone to represent you when you only have 50% of the vote? Yeah. So the LPR votes for 50% but doesn't get anything done because... Well, you're at a stalemate. You can't... You need more than 50%. So typically with a company, you need more than 50% to vote in a director. In a corporate trustee, the shares are held in individual names. Therefore, the shares of the deceased go into the estate. The LPR then exercises those shareholder rights. But because it's only 50-50, we have a stalemate. We have a stalemate. Therefore, you know, the appointor role becomes very important. So at the appointor level, who has the higher account balance? So if in this instance, Dad has a higher account balance, then it's very important that your SMSF deed provides the LPR the right to represent Dad. Now, most deeds are silent. They leave dad high and dry. Dad doesn't have any anywhere to go. So the second spouse is running the show. Um, in a lot of deeds, one of the most popular deeds you get over the web very cheaply is the second spouse runs a show. Whoever is the survivor takes, takes all effectively and can just pay themselves. As I said, uh, Worcester and Morris, Polly and Conti and a whole range of other cases where the second spouse has just paid it all to themselves and they haven't been impeached necessarily by the courts because what they've done is through the valid process of the role of the law and appointing themselves as trustee and making a decision after considering everyone's interests. Do you see most cases in um, uh, in mended in blended families? Do you see most of the SMSF cases in blended families, or you know where, where you have a second spouse? Look, uh, they're the hot ones, and it's also interesting to note we've had a whole run of uh, cases in recent times. So it's been you know quite a range of cases coming up that generally involve the second spouse. There's also a lot of disputes that never hit the headlines. So we work on you know weekly we we work on disputes that you know at times as children, and there's also you know the children against the older parent. There's a whole review recently. The Australian Law Reform Commission has had a review of elder abuse, children abusing their parents. Their parents have the entitlement to the money, but the children are milking their parents for their mortgage or their new car or their lifestyle, and the parents are just um, being bullied or not aware of what their children are doing, milking the funds. (laughs) 
So, look, corporate trustee is the best way to go. Having the right constitution where you have, you know, awareness of what's going to happen, where you know that the shares could be given to the right person. And this, again, comes down to where I started from, that is succession. Having all the documents speak together, drafted together. If you do have someone who's trusted, such as your representative, particularly where there is a second spouse, that it may be a child, a natural child of that parent who is the representative who would step in to give balance to the judgment if the surviving spouse, being number two, is left standing. In, in our documents, we provide a concept or a strategy called successor director. So we allow you to nominate someone to step into your shoes at the moment that you lose your marbles or you die. So at the moment you lose your marbles or die, you can have someone being your trusted person to step in your shoes to keep an eye on, say, your second spouse who may otherwise be running the show. And that is called our successor director documents. When does an SMSF go into the estate? Because SMSF assets can go into the estate, but when do they do that? I thought they only did that if there are no dependents, and then it's up to the trustee to decide whether it goes into the estate or not. Is that right? Well, well Heidi, what, what the starting point is, someone dies. Let's say dad dies, and let's say mum, and this is mum from the first relationship, she's left standing and she's making a decision. Her decision is... Am I locked in? Is there a binding direction? Is there a binding death benefit nomination or similar document? And if there is, then there's no description. And, and, and if there is, even if there is a document that's called a BDBN, um, it's best that that is checked out to see whether it stacks up. Um, why? Because there's a range of cases that would suggest that a lot of BDBNs just fail, okay? There's a lot of documents out there just will fail in this regard. There's a whole string of cases uh, we, we will go to later, uh, just discussing that, that that very point. So you've got to make sure it is a binding death benefit nomination. And binding death benefit nomination, you need a firm deed, you need a clear deed, you um, need a deed that is not necessarily conditioned upon the CIS BDBN provisions because the CIS BDBN provisions do not apply to an SMSF at, at all. Um, this has been confirmed by a number of judgments, including you know, the judgment Mullins and Mullins, Queensland Supreme Court, and that's been backed up by Cantor and Booth and more recently by Ray Namaron. So Ray Namaron has confirmed the those other decisions that I mentioned. And then there's a large, you know, fund dispute as well that said the BDBN provisions in CIS are uncertain, ambiguous, and could lead to uncertain results and therefore should be reviewed and recast by the Commonwealth. So we have a whole range of judgments which would suggest that you have a deed that is reliant upon the CIS Act provisions of relying on a BDBN, particularly the three-year rule, that that is likely to be subject to challenge. It's just there's been so many court cases that say that those provisions don't apply to an SMSF that they're likely not to be uh, that sound to um, rely on, you know, what I would call is skating on thin ice. So therefore, you want a firm deed that would actually cover you, that isn't going to be open to other um, grounds of attack, such as, you know, it's subject to the trustee's satisfaction and the trustee does not like that BDBN and there's a legal fight on that could cost a lot of money. But getting back to your question, that is the spouse who's left um, making this decision should work out who to pay. And working out who to pay, they have regard to the deed. Most deeds would suggest that you can pay a dependent 
or the estate. And the estate um, needs to be in the context of complying with SIS and the deed. Typically, it is the legal personal representative being the executor um, because an estate is a trust relationship, whereas the person you pay is executor. So therefore, the surviving trustee decides who do I pay the death benefit to. They may have regard to non-binding wishes. It might be a non-binding nomination. They would have regard, if there is a valid um, binding nomination, have regard to that. If there is a valid binding nomination, there is no discretion. It is really um, follow that, you know, binding nomination, just pay it out in accordance with that binding nomination, which, you know, to in itself could be a problem. Some people realise that uh, they've got a binding nomination. It's no longer suitable for them. They'd like to get out of that straitjacket. How do they get out of that straitjacket? So some people do feel bound by something they no longer like because it's no longer suitable due to the law changes or for some other reason. So that's one thing to deal with. But let's assuming there is a discretion. You've got a range of dependents. You've got spouse, child. Even an adult child is a dependent. It's not a tax dependent. So the tax treatment will be different to that person as an adult child unless they are financially dependent or in an interdependency relationship. So we could have spouse, child, financial dependent or an interdependent as the range of dependents, and that is under CIS, and then we also have the LPR. So the money from the super will only form part of the estate if it is actually paid to the executor via that mechanism of either discretionary judgment where there's a consideration of all those dependents and the LPR, and then a payment is made, a decision then payment is made, or it's via the BDBN and a payment is made. What's the better way to go? Okay, well, that all depends. And this is the beauty about this. There's no size fits all. So whether you pay a dependent or whether you pay the LPR will depend on a range of circumstances. Like, for instance, it may be that the um, deceased died um, insolvent and bankrupt. So why pay the estate? Because that will just go to the creditors. So you may want to bypass the estate by going directly to, say, spouse or children. There are instances as well where there's no surviving spouse where you say the kids are going to blow it. You know, they're below 25 They'll look at a new car. They won't go through uni. They'll have a good time. So why pay them the money now? Because as I said before, it's best to pay. Succession is all about paying the right person at the right time. So to pay the kids now at 25 when they're going to blow it, why don't we keep it in the estate, in a testamentary trust, where there are other executives looking after their money for them until they get to a sensible age? Indeed, a client the other day asked, can we tie it up until they're 60? And I said, Bruce, that's a bit old. I said, you can rule from the grave so far, but I can tell you this, if they get to 40 and they're going to blow it, well, that's probably not bad. I don't think you, legally it would hold. Well, that's right. Like Even if you, they tried. You, you could, look, if they had a handicap or whatever, but we do ah, see yes, it happening. Of course, if they're time, handicapped, yes. Yeah. If they're not of a sound mind, yeah. then it would hold. But if they are, then... Yeah, so look, typically um, our rule of thumb would be 35, like 35. Kids haven't smarted up by then. Well, really, can you control their destiny for, for, for much longer than 35? I see. So in a testamentary trust, you can set age limits, but I think in a normal trust, it's very difficult to, to have age limits stand up if the child is 
past 18 and of a sound mind. Heidi, that all depends on how you design the trust. Where it's a sort of a trust where they have an entitlement, yes. Saunders and Vautier, where they are all 18, where they're of full mind, they can bring the trust to an end. Yeah, that was the case I was thinking of. Yeah, so that's Saunders and Vautier, but there are ways to overcome that. So lawyers can get around those sort of judgments. Typically we say to such my children that attain the age of, say, 30, and if more than one, then equally. However, should a child predecease mine, leaving children of their own, then there's a gift over to the children who stand in their stead. So you see there are legal techniques of extending the duration of that trust where it won't come to the Saunders and Vautier um, position. I think the definition of dependent is different between cis and tax. Is that right? So if you look at the definition in the ITAA 97 of dependent for super, then in that case it talks about a child who is less than 18. So the tax-free status of death benefit is tax-free to a dependent, but in respect of a child, an adult child is not seen as a dependent unless they are financially dependent or they are in an interdependency relationship. Interdependency is generally, look, it could happen where children later on, their parents are very old and their parents sort of have a granny flat at the child's residence and the child is supporting the parent both financially and emotionally. In that case, that child could become an interdependent of their older parent. So it, it can happen. There's an ATO ID. It's 2014-22, where in that ID it actually explores this territory where an adult child can become a dependent, either financially as a financial dependent or as an interdependent. Usually the line around dependence is much tighter under the Income Tax well, Assessment Act. No, the only key difference is what we've just discussed. The only yeah. key difference is for a child, you are not a dependent, but you can be a dependent. And again, I refer you back to Atoid, uh, 2014-22, where a child who is an adult child can also get a tax-free death benefit where they are financially dependent or in an interdependency relationship. Now, admittedly, to become financially dependent, uh, you'd have to have some um, regular ongoing financial support direct from the parent, not from their family company, not from their family trust, but direct from the parent over a long period of time to maintain your lifestyle. And just to give you some further insight, it's not as if at all the commissioner has been generous here. The commissioner sees that you're almost at a subsistence lifestyle rather than what the case law and AAT decisions would suggest, that if it was to maintain your lifestyle, as in Malik's case, then maintaining your lifestyle, even though that may be a fairly you know, luxurious lifestyle, is really what dependency is about. I would love to understand why a death benefit is not allowed to go into the accumulation phase. You know, why is the ATO so hooked up on that one? Yeah, why this drama around money going into accumulation? Why is that an issue to the ATO? Okay, our super system has what's called compulsory cashing conditions. Uh, the key compulsory cashing condition is death. So it's possible today that you could accumulate until 100 die and then your benefit must be paid out. So death is a compulsory cashing event. So what 
the idea is with super is we'll give you tax concessions during your life, but upon upon death, we want your money to come out. Now, your money can come out of the fund by way of lump sum. So if it's paid out by a lump sum, it's just paid out of the fund. But in a lot of cases, particularly mums and dads or couples, they would like a pension. So they would like, if they have a pension, to revert their pension. So the commencement of a pension or the reversion of a pension is is tantamount to that money commencing to be paid as soon as practicable in accordance with Regulation 6.21 of the Superannuation Industry Supervision Regulations. The government basically wants the money to be used for retirement. So when the first spouse dies, it can go to the retirement of the second spouse but it's not meant to be sitting in accumulation for a, a favourable tax rate. The government, you know, in the 2017 changes particularly, were wanting to reduce the ability to do estate planning through super. So they've really sort of made it a lot tighter since mid-2017 with the transfer balance cap. So what happened previously, if you had $10 million in your fund, um, you could be on a $10 million pension. Your spouse might have had, a, say, a $5 million pension. So in combined terms, as a couple, you've got $15 million. So let's say husband passed away first. His 10 mil could go over to spouse. So the spouse now has 15 mil. She, she would have two pensions in this instance. She'd have her own pension of five. She'd have a husband's reversionary pension, for instance, of 10. She's got 15 mil. However, that was all cut away in mid-2017. Um, and the maximum now that can go over to the spouse is 1.6 from the husband. So let's say in this instance he's got 10 mil. Look, at best, the spouse can take 1.6 by way of pension from the deceased. And let's say that spouse has five. In this instance, the spouse would have to fold back her $5 million pension to be able to pick up the 1.6 uh, reversionary pension from her uh, late husband. So in this case, because it's a reversionary pension, uh, it's 12 months before the 1.6 gets credited to her transfer balance account. So what the government would want under the new rules is that with this 10 mil, um, at, at best 1.6 could revert to the spouse. The 8.4 must be flushed out of the fund. They don't want any money remaining in that fund, so it's sort of compulsory cashing and they take the view under Reg 6.21 that all of that 8.4 must be paid out. At best, you can get 1.6, and the 1.6 reversionary pension is like um, passing the baton in a relay race. Here, Mum, here's my 1.6. This is all you're going to get from me out of the super system. The rest is paid out as cash, and then Mum has to fold her pension to create space under her transfer balance account to take on the 1.6 from Dad. So that's the new system, and that's how it's designed to operate. A death benefit pension is always a fresh account-based pension unless it's a reversionary pension, isn't it? So when, when somebody dies and it goes to a dependent and they now have a pension, it would always be a fresh ABP unless we have a reversionary pension. Well, well, that's right. But look, you think about someone who, um, you know, they're 40 and they die and they've got a super balance. Well, you know, they haven't even got to the stage where they can commence a pension. So the spouse, even though the spouse may, be, may only be 40 or whatever, 35, that spouse can have a pension commenced on the death. So the condition of release is the death of the deceased, which opens up the ability for surviving spouse to take a pension. Now, that is a fresh pension. So in that instance, you get a fresh pension 
So the surviving spouse can now have a fresh ABP, even though they haven't met a condition of release? Oh, oh I see. the condition of release is the deceased. I see. It's the death of the deceased. So death is a um, condition of release. It releases the money for the surviving spouse. So the surviving spouse now has a pension. The only, the only thing here really is below 60, it is not a tax-free pension. So they would be taxed on it. Uh, they would get a 15% offset on the taxable component uh, because it is a death benefit pension. But, you know, the rest of the taxable component are, um, having regard to the 15% offset would be taxable to the recipient until the recipient's surviving spouse uh, attains 60 years of age, which it should be then tax-free, assuming the law today applies then. In this example, did the deceased have a pension at the time of death or the deceased was 40 and didn't have a pension at the time of it, death? Exactly. How can you have a pension of 40 unless you're, you know, um, yeah, unless um, you're disabled total, or terminally, terminally permanently Ill. disabled yeah. or terminally ill? Yeah. So this this is complete news to me. So a 40-year-old spouse dies, had everything in accumulation, the assets now go to the surviving spouse, and the surviving spouse, also 40 years of age, can now start an ABP. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, because the condition of release is a deceased death. They start an ABP, a pension. They will be taxed on it because they're under 60, but they will get the offset in regards to the taxable component. But, but Heidi, the other option here is for the surviving spouse to say, hey, I'm going to get taxed on that pension. may not be that tax efficient. What I will do is I'll take a lump sum. So I'll take a lump sum. Like, like let's say we're talking about a lump sum of 600000 Then 600000 we get out of the fund. I can now, as the surviving spouse, I may be able to contribute some money to that fund if they want to put in some money from the fund. But if they do contribute to the money to the fund, they are then locked into the preservation rule. So they may have to wait until they get to 60 before they can start a benefit. So that's that's the real benefit of the fresh pension on death of someone who's, say, under 60. Yeah, now I hear what you're saying. It just takes me a complete surprise. I didn't know that, that a 40-year-old surviving spouse can start an ABP. Well, it is interesting as well because a lot of people don't understand that. A lot of people as well say, uh, look, um, I don't need a will. I haven't got much money. But often they might, you know, they might even be a blue-collar worker and they work for Australia Post or something, and often with their super, even though they may not have a high super balance, they may have insurance, and their insurance may be 500000 mm. So it's really worthwhile, you know, connecting with these people and saying, hey, you still may need your will, you still may need your estate planning, do you need mm. a BDBN, um, you know, and all those mm. um, things we've been talking about today. Mm. And I actually had a case like that. It was a young man who worked in phone support centres, ended his life, but because he had several employers, he had several insurances going. And even though he didn't have much money when he was alive, the payout from those three super funds was, was huge. Yes, and we, we see that quite often. How are death benefits taxed? Well, as a lump sum, if you are a dependent in a tax sense, then as a dependent from a tax sense, it is tax-free. We, we should also divide it up between the taxable component and the tax-free component because a tax-free component is always tax-free. So we're really focusing on the taxable component. So the taxable component is tax-free to a dependent. And as mentioned before, the major exception is an adult child, unless an adult child qualifies as a financial dependent or an interdependent, 
than an adult child would be taxed. But typically they're taxed no more than 15, 15% on the taxable component. Mm. But they're taxed 15%. On the taxable component, and you would get the taxable component from employer contributions. You wouldn't get the taxable component from non-concessional contributions because non-concessional contributions always go into the tax-free component, don't they? I mean, not as an amount, but as a percentage. Yeah, yeah, there's a proportion rule. And in the proportion rule, you look at the benefit being paid, and the benefit being paid, uh, you look at the market value of that benefit or the assets supporting that benefit being paid at that time. So from a lump sum viewpoint, You look at the market value of the account balance, you take out the tax-free component. And as you say, the tax-free component is largely comprised of two amounts. One is the crystallized amount, and the crystallized amount is your typically your pre-83 rolled-up tax-free amount that was crystallized in mid-2007. Then there's a contribution segment. And the contribution segment, as you say, is generally the amount that is the dollar amount, no growth, of non-concessional contributions. So yes. The tax-free component is generally a static amount, and therefore that static amount, anything on top of that like concessional contributions, growth, so growth is a big one, adds to the um, taxable component. Ah, oh, yes, that's, very, that's a very important point. All growth within the SMSF goes into the taxable component. While you're in accumulation mode. Yes. So while you're in accumulation mode, uh, Section 307.125 being the proportioning rule, um, has it that all growth goes to the taxable component. However, once you're in pension mode, once you're in pension mode, when you start a pension, let's say you start a pension 50% tax-free, 50% taxable, then that proportion of 50% will maintain itself for the life of the pension. So let's look at dad. Let's say dad whacks in, you know, the 300 non-concessional and has 300 of other money. That's a 50% tax-free pension. He might die in, you know, say 20 years' time. When he dies, it's doubled in value. It's 1.2. So it's still 50-50. It's 50-50. But let's say that goes on to mum. So mum's now picked up the pension. It's 50% tax-free. It doubles again to 2.4. When mum dies and it's 2.4, the kids are getting 1.2 tax-free. So your tax-free component can grow in pension phase. How are the pensions taxed? Well, in respect of the pension, pensions will be tax-free where either the deceased member or the recipient, being the reversionary beneficiary, either of them are over 60. The typical case is mum and dad. So let's say dad goes and he's above 60, but mum's under 60, it's still tax-free to mum because one of them is over 60. But let's say dad was under 60 and mum was over 60, again, it's tax-free. But we also gave the example before where dad dies at 40 and his spouse is 35. They're both under 60. So surviving spouse will have to wait until they attain 60 before it is tax-free to that surviving spouse. So they don't pay anything. So how do they wait? They receive they receive the assets. Um, well, they're getting a pension. They're getting a pension, so they get the income stream but it's taxable. The, the yeah. taxable component is taxable. They get a 15% offset of the taxable component on their tax bill, yes. but uh, the tax-free component is always tax-free. Yes, so they pay tax, 15% tax from the age of 35 to 60. Uh, marginal tax rate, less the 15% offset, and plus the Medicare levy, and they'll pay that until they attain 60. But pension payments from 60 will then be tax-free. But look, as I said before, 
Who knows what the law will be in years to come. Should you make your pension auto-reversionary or are there also reasons not to make it reversionary? Look, it is a good question and, again, the answer is it depends. A lot of people think that an auto-reversionary pension is the best way to go. It, it may be, but there's a whole range of considerations we would take into account. For instance, what happens if you have a surviving spouse that, let's say, dad dies, he's got 1.6, mum has 1.6, it's all taxable. So if dad dies, leaves a reversionary pension to mum, mum's now got 3.2. Let's say um, mum dies soon afterwards, mum's died, you've got adult children, you're now going to pay at least 15% tax on that $3.2 million. Whereas had dad died and mum pulled out the lump sum, that 1.6 would have been entirely tax-free. So I'll put it to you, you reverting the pension means that you think you're going to save tax down the line. So how long does that extra money of dad's at 1.6 or whatever it is, how long does that need to sit in that super system in order to be in front of the tax that would otherwise be payable um, on mum dying early after dad's death? So it's really hard to put a number on it, but people that I've spoken to and I don't give financial advice, I'm not licensed to, some people have suggested it's somewhere between the 7- to 10-year mark so that if you do revert and if mum, for instance, in this case, was to outlive dad by 7- to 10 years, the tax efficiency within the super system might mean that you could be in front. But, as I said, if mum was to die soon after dad, and you're then facing the death tax, the 15% plus the Medicare to the kids, well, you may be out of the money. Now, there's not only that reason, but also if it is auto-reversionary, it's going to skip the estate. And people in life like to have choices. And even though they may not exercise a choice, it might be good to have the choice. So, for instance, if, say, the member dies, then if it's not auto-reversionary, then the trustee can exercise the discretion to say, what do I do with, say, the deceased benefit? Will I commence a fresh pension? Will I pay it as lump sum? Who will I pay it to? Whereas if it's auto-reversionary, that means it skips the estate. There's no longer that opportunity to say, hey, we'll do it this way or that way. Now, given the propensity and pace of our laws to change so quickly and surprisingly, because we've never told the way they, they treat us in super, they, they just juggle it all the time, even though it's a long-term playing field, that um, some people like to keep their options alive. Welcome back. So SMSF succession and estate planning are two very different things but need to work hand in hand. In the next episode, episode 113, Daniel Butler will talk about binding death benefit nominations, BDBNs. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.